Hello, everybody. This is Red Volkart, and you're listening to the Northern Report with John Burns. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, friends. Welcome to the Northern Report. I'm your host, Sean Burns, and I'm coming right at you from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Here on the Northern Report, I aim to shine a light on emerging and existing Canadian talent, as well as some of the legends we're still lucky to have with us. My guest on today's show is Red Volkart. A Grammy Award winner, Red has enjoyed a storied career and is one of the most well-respected guitar players out there today. His name first became familiar to me during his stint in Merle Haggard's band, The Strangers. He's backed up some of the biggest legends in country music and is no slouch as a frontman himself, having performed all over the world under his own name with various backing bands. Now, I first connected with Red in early 2020 when I was in the process of assembling a group of some of my favorite musicians to play on a record that I was set to make down in Texas. When the pandemic hit, plans of course changed, but I remained in touch with Red online and semi-regularly feature his music on Boots and Saddle, my weekly radio program here on CKUW. Red's work with Merle Haggard and his Austin, Texas-based group Hay Bale are well-known in country music circles. I was interested to learn more about his backstory and the journey that led him to becoming known globally as one of the finest country music guitar pickers of his generation. It was a great pleasure to speak with them, and I know you'll enjoy my chat with Red Volkart. You rang? <laughs> I sure did. How you doing, man? Good. Still a, still a good time for you to sit down and have a little chat? Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm glad you made the time. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, no worries. I didn't know you were in Winnipeg. I grew up uh, in southern Ontario, but I, I moved to Winnipeg eight years ago now. Oh, okay. You must know a lot of folks around here. Not around there, no. I'm more of a western western guy. Of course, when I grew up, the west hated the east. I don't think they, I don't know if they still do or not. But. I think in Alberta they do. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a... Yeah. Uh, there's a, a pretty comprehensive uh, timeline of your journey on your website, uh, but for the next hour or so, I just kind of I want to dig a little deeper and uh, politely interrogate you a little bit more about your uh, your time in country music, if that's all right. All right. Uh, you grew up out in Surrey, British Columbia. Yeah. Yeah, I went to school there. Was it like back then? It's like it's it's really uh, it's like it's a, probably a million people in that area now. Yeah, it wasn't when I was a kid. That was uh, we moved there in 1966, so uh, there were still neighborhoods, and uh, I think every every yard was a two acre yard back then. Felt felt like a little bit more of a small town. Well, it was more rural. I mean, we didn't have a downtown at all. Where in uh, the Fleetwood was the neighborhood that I grew up in, and. Uh, I think the nearest town or sort of city was a little place called Wally, and it was probably seven miles away from where I was at. So, I mean, Vancouver was uh, was felt like out of reach. Oh, totally, yeah. Until I got a license, you know, then I was 
playing gigs there and stuff. But yeah, it was, uh, that was something that, you, you know, I mean, my dad went there for different things and that. So once in a while I'd go with him, you know, that kind of deal, or we'd have a trip to Vancouver for something, but that's, uh, probably from where I grew up. I want to say it was at least a 40 minute drive. So it wasn't something you'd do on your bike, you know. What kind of music were you hearing around the house in, in those days? Well, I was a little kid. My parents had a, a big hi-fi console in the middle of the living room, and they played all kinds of stuff. My my mom liked uh, Ella Fitzgerald, Aretha Franklin, Fontella uh, Bass, all kind of R&B kind of blues and that sort of thing, and pop music back then and my dad he was a big blues nut so he had albert king records and bb king and freddie king and uh jimmy reed and you know and then on the bottom of the stack he had uh i think it was Waylon's first record and everybody's first record back then would have been a couple of buck owens records the merle haggard record uh i think i remember seeing the jerry reed's first album on the bottom of the pile too and so they listened to a little bit of everything and my mom liked Les Paul and Mary Ford and she had a Jimmy Bryant EP I don't know how she wound up with that but when she was a young gal she worked in a record store so I think she started her collection back then uh in the 50s you know stuff she heard or whatever at the store then she oh I would get a copy of that so she wound up with a Jimmy Bryant one which of course I wound up stealing and wearing out and ruining <laughs> pretty well-rounded i think i've i've always thought that uh that country music is is for sophisticated musical palettes and i'm wondering uh, if you remember the first time you heard country music and if it resonated with you right away or if it took some time to sort of absorb uh i don't know i mean listening to all the things that my folks listen to i mean they would get uh, another couple or two over on the weekend and they'd move all the furniture and blast the records away so i remember waking up at two three in the morning and hearing ray price shuffles all night long so i think just a little osmosis through that made me go oh that's pretty cool stuff you know but uh as a kid in school of course you couldn't be caught dead having a country record in your collection you know so because you know back in the uh i guess the late 60s early 70s if you weren't a rock lover then you know you weren't shit really as a, as any teenager knows it's a you know uh, a hard thing in school to to try to fit in and part of that is the music you like you know so uh my brother is a year older so he had all the records of the day of the rock bands back then the deep purple and led zeppelin and grand funk and that kind of stuff so uh, i got to hear all of that and learn and listen you know listen to it and learn a little bit of it and but I still I had my parents' records that I could sneak and listen to those, and of course there was a lot of blues and a lot of country, and you know the Ray Charles stuff and the Aretha Franklin I couldn't understand any of that or the chords of that stuff, so it was Greek to me as a guitar guy. But uh, as as a little nerd learning the guitar, it seemed a little bit easier to stumble around and follow the blues guys and the country guys. So. I, I mean, I've always heard of country music as a dumbass's music. It's not sophisticated at all. Even as a kid, I remember people, oh, no, we don't we don't listen to that stuff. That's kind of hillbilly, whatever, you know. And, and then later on, even in the uh, 
in the 80s when I moved to L.A., I'd run into guitar players and they'd kind of chuckle and say, oh, yeah, I know some country. And then they'd play a really bad version of Wildwood Flower and, and yuck it up and think it was like just dumb shit music, you know? Yeah. And uh, I remember that. I don't remember anybody saying that it was sophisticated <laughs> at all. But, uh, you know, as a guitar kid, I I learned the rock and the blues stuff to to be able to not get beat up in school. But I always had the country records on the bottom of the stack. And, and I guess from listening to them as a young, young kid with my parents, you know, listening to them and dancing to the music and that, I just loved the sound of it. And when I finally got into the guitar, like 10 years old, I decided that, uh, you know, I'm going to try and emulate some of these sounds. And of course, like anybody, when you when you get one lick, you think, oh, great, I'm not quite such a dummy i can i can learn a little bit of this stuff and once the hook was in that was it it was over i mean i i liked everything and i tried to learn everything but i tried to learn the country stuff just as much as a teenager as i did the rock and the blues stuff you know and it, i wasn't i don't think i was prejudiced in saying that one was better than another it was just totally different sounds but yet uh they're all kind of hard to learn you know when you're 12 years old so that was the fun part. I mean, I I, I refuse to believe that uh, Ray Price's vocals or James Burton's guitar playing is is not sophisticated. Well, I think that's a dumb shit telling you something like that. In my opinion. I mean, it's that's like somebody saying to you, "Boy, that guitar sounds great," like Chet Atkins did to a guy. The guy said, "Hey, that guitar sounds great." Chet Atkins hands it to him, says, "How's it sound now?" <laughs> You know, it's the same thing. Somebody tells you that country music is real bad, hand them a guitar and say, well, if it's so dumb and simple, play me play me something. Play me a Jerry Reed song or a Chet Atkins song. I guarantee it'll get you hear crickets. Did you dig on those rock players like uh, Richie Blackmore and Jimmy Page and Hendrix and stuff, or, or, or was that just sort oh, of like a necessary evil? Oh, no, no, no. I loved uh, my... my I never was a Hendrix guy for whatever reason. I never was and still not. But uh, as a young guitar nut, I was a big time Richie Blackmore and Alvin Lee from 10 years after. Oh, yeah. They were my two two kind of hero rock god guys. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's because my brother had more of their records and I listened to that stuff and went, oh, is that ever cool? It's fast and crazy sounding and uh, I might be able to try and get some of that, you know. Was uh, was your brother a player too? He's a drummer, yeah. Really good drummer. You guys playing bands together growing up? Yeah, you bet. So who were your favorite country pickers? Well, back then, I mean, I, I didn't know anything but Buck Owens, Merle Haggard, Ray Price, um, and the Jimmy Bryant record. So I didn't know of anything and I mean, uh, I don't know that we listened to the radio at all in the house. We, you know, we listened to records all the time at that, at that point, you know. And then when I got a car, of course, I'd turn on the country radio and, you know, they were still playing Buck Owens back then because he had a big long run and so did Merle and blah, blah. You know, so I heard a lot of that same kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, and it broadened my horizons too. You know, when I listened to the radio, I could hear other folks and, all the different people, you know, the Charlie Rich kind of singers and those sort of folks. And so, uh, 
I was aware of that at that point after I got my driver's license and a little bit more. And, and, uh, then I was started playing in bands pretty regular. So of course they were doing all kinds of different stuff and playing nightclubs and stuff. You have to play everything for everybody to try and keep them there. So I had to learn all kinds of styles, I think, or try to at least. And, uh, so listening to all that other stuff early, early on, I think that helped me a lot too in, uh, not being so narrow-minded to learn something, you know? Yeah, totally. And you mean such a well-rounded record collection growing up. So what kind of bands were you playing in and like around, around what age were you, uh, were you, were you out there gigging? Well, I started, uh, actually first, I think my first gig was at 13 or 14. Uh, I played guitar in a, in a, in a weekend band. And then I, wound up playing bass in another weekend band for about a year, year and a half. So I got to watch a steel guitar player and a fiddle player a lot and play bass in that band. And, and, uh, so that was a fun learning experience as well. But as far as the, the weekend country band, you know, up in Canada back then, I don't, you know, so how much it changed, but, uh, I, I call it the antler circuit where you play the moose and the elks and <laughs> everything with horns on it. And that's the kind of clubs that you played back then, the legions and those kind of things. So uh, back in those days, they only had music on the weekends in those, in those kind of situations. And so I played in a bunch of those bands and I didn't play in my first uh, six night a week kind of nightclub cabaret thing up there until until uh, I was probably 15 or 16. You were doing six-nighters when you were, when you were 15 years old? No, I would fill in for guys that were, had regular house gigs at a club. You know, oh. they played, back in those days, you, you, you could, your band could play six nights a week, you know, at, at the bar in the Royal Hotel in every town in Canada, you know. But, so I would fill in for guys that, that needed a night off or something once in a while or somebody got sick or that kind of thing. So I started getting into the club thing, uh, at that point doing that. But of course they'd have to come get me cause I didn't have a license or nothing. <laughs> they have to come get me and bring my, my, you know, I bore my dad's twin and, and, uh, took my telecaster and went and played a gig and came home. And then, you know, same old thing. It started snowballing where I was getting more and more calls and by then, by then I was getting a driver's license and then, then I hit, you know, it was like, okay, I, I know what I'm going to do. I want to quit school and just go play, you know? Yeah. Um, was there any, uh, any bands or singers from that area and that era that, uh, you really enjoyed or influenced you or helped you out when you were young? Yeah. Uh, in the Vancouver area, there was a fellow named Elmer Tippy. That was a Ray Price kind of guy, played the fiddle and sang and sounded kind of like Ray Price and did those sort of old shuffles, two-step kind of stuff. And there was another band called Ray McCauley and Wild Country. And my guitar hero at the time was a fellow named Eddie Belusky, who later on in the, uh, I think in the 70s, had a band called the Midnight Rodeo Band. Oh, yeah. And they had a bunch of RCA success. Uh, in Canada, tons of it back then in the late seventies. And Eddie was, uh, when I was a little kid, he was in another band called the Nashville touch and they were kind of a Buck Owens clone band. And they all bought brand new fenders and painted them silver sparkle like Buck Owens. <laughs> and, uh, 
So I used to ride my bike and his, that band would go and they would play at the opening of a car lot or, a, or when a mall opened up back then, a mall was a big thing. And so when a mall opened up, they'd have a band playing in the parking lot. It would be that band. And uh, Eddie was the guitar player. And of course, back then they did lots of Buck Owens. So we did a ton of instrumentals. And he knew every one of those Don Rich instrumentals. So to me, he was God. And, you know, because I, I was a guy I could ride my bike to see and actually watch him play instead of having the, you know, having the records. And, uh, you know, like, when's, when am I going to get to see Richie Blackmore or Alvin Lee? Of course I did, but that wasn't until a, you know, a little bit later on. And I got to watch him play and go, holy shit, still. But, uh <laughs> You know, so Eddie was kind of my local guy, hero, chicken picking telecaster guy, and uh, an, an older fellow that uh, made steel guitars made him a little B bender. Oh. And this was back in the late 60s. He had a B bender on his telecaster. So, of course, he could sound like a steel player, sort of, you know, and uh, they didn't have a steel in the band. So he was it. He got all the guitar solos and the steel solos. So, it was awesome for me to watch a guy like that. Just, you know, to me, he was the whole band. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> for so they sure. were kind of the, they were the two uh, popular bands when I was a little kid growing up that I was just idolized. And, you know, and back in those days, we didn't have cable yet. So we, all we had was, uh, you know, CBC and I think NBC was the only American one. So we watched all the, uh, you know, Tommy Hunter show and, uh, back then, and a guy named Ronnie Prophet had a TV show for a while in the 70s, and uh, so I watched those kind of shows, and they would always have a lot of American guests on and stuff, so that was our only chance to see somebody play unless they came through town, you know, on tour or something like that, so I'd say Eddie was my main influence hero back then in the, uh, you know, early, mid-70s kind of it's such a common thing through that era, as I've come to find uh, the TV show, the country music TV show, like, even regional ones. But, you know, of course, Tommy Hunter was national, but tons of these regional TV shows. And they would all have like really respectable guests and often American country music singers, too. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what would sell the show. Right. You know, who'd want to who'd want to watch a watch a Canadian up there with a goofy suit playing guitar and singing? You know, they'd rather have a guy that a guy from the Grand Ole Opry with a goofy suit playing and singing, you know, they recognize cause they got the Hank Snow record or whatever. And if he's on that TV show, Ooh, let's tune in. Right. You know? Yeah. So, uh, you leave British Columbia and you head to Edmonton. Yeah. I left there. Uh, I think I was 17. I think I went to Edmonton. Was there a gig there for you, or did you just go there because of the thriving six-nighter scene across Alberta? No, this I uh, was playing with a band, and they, the bass player had split up with his wife and wanted to get out of town, so him and the drummer said, hey, let's start a trio and move to Alberta. So you want to go with, with us? I said, sure, I'll go. So I got the car and drove and went out there and started playing there, and I worked around that area. Uh, from, I want to say 77, maybe six or seven until, uh, about 83 or four, I think, until I left. Who, uh, who were some of the better bands, notable acts and singers in the circuit back then? Uh, in, 
like in Calgary, you mean, when I was living there? Yeah, in, Al- in the Alberta region. Well, in Alberta was uh, Joyce Smith and the and Rodeo Wind was a really big cowboy country band. Her husband was a one the all around bronc riding and uh, steer wrestling and all kinds of. He won everything for several years, and and so we did tons of rodeo stuff when I finally got to play with them. But they were a real popular band, and there was a band called the Prairie Fire Band that was had been around forever. Uh, did a lot of stuff. And of course, Ian Tyson was big living up there at that time. Uh, there was a fellow from Red Deer named Larry Gustafson, who was a really good singer and real funny comedian guy, and played guitar and sang, had a great band. Uh, and a gal from Edmonton named Laura Vinson and Red Wing were really popular. Well, there's a ton of stuff going on back then. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's you know it'll it'll probably never be like that again. It just seems to me just so exciting and uh, rewarding to to be able to play country music six nights a week, uh, every week, all year long. Yeah, I think those days are gone because of the you know everything, the drinking and driving and and that and all the politically incorrect. You know. Did you leave Edmonton to go to California? Uh, I kind of bounced back and forth between Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, when I first left Vancouver, I went to Edmonton, uh, pumped around there for a couple of years, about three or four years, I guess. Then I went down to Calgary then up to Red Deer, back to Calgary, back to Edmonton, that kind of thing. And I think the last thing I did was up at Edmonton, uh, some stuff there and it would have been 80 five or six i guess and then from there i went to los angeles after that did you read was it like uh kind of realizing you had to go to a bigger market to make a, a bigger splash or get a higher profile gig no nah, i wasn't into that shit i was just a dumbass guitar player wanting to learn you know I, to me it was like the reason i left probably would be i'd have to say was that up there it seemed like and since I've found out in other places too, but it seemed like the mark of a good guitar player was a guy that could copy somebody else and sound just like an American artist. So up there, it seemed like that. And they, nobody wanted to hear, like as a guitar player, nobody wanted to hear a guitar player that did his own thing or had his own way of doing something. It was like, nah, you got to sound, you got to play everything note for note off the record and and copy exactly what the session guys in Nashville did, even on the Canadian guys' record. You know, so which is fine. I mean, I did that and I learned a lot and I copied a bunch of great stuff that way doing that. But it just seemed at that point in my life it was like, oh, I'm tired of copying all this shit. I want to do some stuff on my own and and make my own kind of sounds and play uh, the way that I do because I, I thought it, you know good or bad or stinky or not, I am developing my own style somewhat and I want to keep learning. You know, I don't want to just stay stagnant and just, uh, you know, learn uh, next week's top 40 songs and say, oh, that's the same licks from three years ago on a Steve Warner record. You know, it's like, oh, you just get tired of doing that stuff. So that's kind of what made me leave. And my goal wasn't to go be a star or any none of that kind of stuff at all. 
uh, my goal was I wanted to go to Nashville and either watch and see the guitar players that I knew of because of the records that I had. You know, I've been learning off records and tapes forever and thinking, okay, I'm learning all this stuff. And I got, uh, you know, some Grady Martin licks and Chet Atkins licks and, you know, all these different guys, Leon Rhodes from Ernest Tubbs band studying all this stuff. And, but man, if I could go down there and see those guys play, I'd know if I was doing it right or wrong. If I'm even in, in the right position or close to, am I learning the right way? Or if I get to see them do it, it'd be awesome. That was my goal. So at that point I was like, okay, I'm going to go down there, but I better stop to see my mom first in Vancouver in case I get killed when I'm down in the States. <laughs> and, uh, she's in Vancouver. So I'll just start down that left coast and I'll head down that way and eventually get to Nashville, which is what I did. I started there in Vancouver, just drove south and got to LA eventually. And I stopped in Santa Cruz and played there in San Jose and all of that, you know, kind of thing. And went to LA and did that. And I was there probably four years and got tired of my car getting broke into all the time. And, and I just went, ah, fuck this place. I'm out. You know, it was great. Cause I got to see so many wonderful players and, and, you know, if I had a night off, I'd go watch old jazz guys play that just, you never saw in Canada. You know, I would go one night and see Mundell Lowe, a jazz guitar player playing with Jack Shelton, who was, uh, I want to say, uh, Mike Douglas's or uh, Merv Griffin's trumpet player band leader on the TV show. And I'd go watch those guys. And then there's, uh, another night I'd go watch Frank Gumbali, who's a phenomenal fusion jazz guy. And, you know, they all lived there. Albert Lee lived down there. So I got to see him play a bunch of times. And so I got to meet a bunch of people and play with a bunch of folks. It was great. But I like to say, I finally got, got tired of the, of the getting broke into and just the whole, uh, you know, when you're a, poor musician you can't live in the best part of town that that's safe you know kind of thing so i just got wore out on that after about four years and said ah it's time to get to nashville so i loaded up and headed on was it similar uh like to the six-nighter thing down there or, or or what was what was the landscape for country music like it was the same in that way there was a lot of six-night clubs and like a band leader would have like if you were the singer band leader you would have your gig at, at whatever club it was. Uh, but the only difference was in Canada was that all the players moved around a lot in your band. So if you had a, a five-piece band, your guitar player may only be there three nights that week because he had some other gigs that were higher profile or paid more money or whatever, some other reason. And there it seemed like it was okay to do that that you could take off and get a guy to fill in for you. So I could be a sub seven nights a week when I first got there and fill in for guys if I was known, which I wasn't at the time, of course. When I moved there, I didn't know anybody. And I went to a couple auditions and I finally got a seven night a week gig and I did that for a year and a half. And while I was doing that, that band, all the members changed in that band except the leader every night. So I got to meet all the fill-in guys and that helped me down the road later on, you know, because I knew a bunch of rhythm section guys and piano players and other players. So 
that helped me later on when I left that gig. Then I already knew, you know, 700 players to call and say, hey, everybody needs a big, dumb guitar player. Give me a call kind of thing, you know, uh, because other than that, you don't, you know, how are you going to meet anybody or know anybody in a place that big, you know? So it worked out. It was great. It was a lot of music, six, seven nights a week. And, and you could play on the weekends. You could play, you know, parties and pool parties and uh, movie company, parking lot parties, and just all kind of good stuff. It was cool. Some of those paid great. And that would be one of the reasons you would take off from your club gig. So, yeah, there was a lot of music going back. That was in the kind of middle 80s. well, I left there, I think it was in 90, something like that, 91. So you, you, you go down there to the United States, I guess it uh, sounds like you kind of kind of just wanted to see, you know, where you were at as a player. Well, I wanted to learn more. Right, right. You know, so, I'll, yeah, I wanted to hopefully run into these guys. And, you know, like one night in L.A., I'm playing in a club, and who comes in? Jeff Beck walks in. <laughs> you know, he didn't play or nothing. But they were filming a movie there at the time. It was a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito called Twins, and they filmed it at this little club. So those guys were there, and they had Jeff Beck there, and it was one of his hot rods. And Well, it was cool. I got to meet him, you know, and, and that was the end of it. Nothing happened. We played our gig, and they, you know, they probably watched us a little bit and went, oh, country music, <laughs> and walked out the door. But, you know, nonetheless, that was really cool that to happen and, and where else would you see that you know so it was pretty awesome did you find uh, more confidence after your time down there like before you headed to nashville was your time in california can kind of give you a little bit more uh, confidence in in what you were doing as a guitar player not in what i was doing as a guitar player i mean it, you're, we're always at, at a whatever level you mean we're, we're always learning so we're always eager to learn i hope you know and and so i don't think there's any kind of you know, if you think you're good and you want to be a cocky asshole, shit, L.A. is a great place to get knocked to your knees. You know, you could go any bar and hear a guy that plays twice as good as you uh, that nobody even notices, you know, so shut up. <laughs> you know, it's that, it's that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's humbling in that way. So, I mean, if you're that kind of person, guaranteed it'll humble you. Or you'll take your great ass and go home because nobody else thinks you're that great, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a bit of that going on, I'm sure. But so in that way, it didn't prepare me musically, but I learned a lot about the business and how guys, you know, work in the business and and all that subbing thing, how that went, and how you had to be diplomatic about doing that and working with other people and. I didn't know about that stuff because, you know, in Canada, you'd have four or five guys and you lived with them till you hated the band and you quit. And then you went with four or five more. And, you know, you did that. You didn't get to meet a different bass player every night for, for a year. And you didn't get to play with a different drummer, you know, twice a week for a year and, and a different one the other days. And, you know, so just doing that stuff, I think, helps you with your a with your people skills b with your music skills because nobody counts off the song the same and uh whoever else is doing the intro is going to be the same as the guy that did it last night so hey pay attention so i learned a lot that way a lot that's invaluable experience yeah 
Well, yeah, and I mean in Canada, no offense, it was it was that it wasn't like that. You know, you have your four piece band and you work that shit to death till you get it down, and you play the same intro every night when you're playing this one song. So there's no new, there's never surprises. And when you're playing, when you're playing with a bunch of fill-in guys, it's a surprise <laughs> every two bars. Heads you up, know? yeah. So that's a huge learning uh, step or curve, whatever you call it, for for a guy to to walk into something like that and go, "Holy cow!" And yet, those guys are so good at it and so pro at it, they know how to make that happen and make that work. Where somebody that doesn't know that, they ain't got a chance in hell of making it work right, you know, until you know how to do it. Right. So that's what I learned a lot about that kind of stuff and how to play in a band, be in a band, be a team player, uh, you know, play with your eyes and your ears open all the time because everything changes all the time. I mean, there were there were guys that play half a night and then the, the sub would come in and fill in for them because they had a big big time showcase later that night at the Roxy or something. You no know? shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was unbelievable. But it was wonderful. Wonderful. That's really cool. So yeah, that must have really, really made an impact on your, on your progress as a as a musician. And I guess uh, you always had designs on going to Nashville. Yeah, that was kind of my goal was not to play or be in anybody's band or nothing. I couldn't give a shit about that. I just wanted to learn more guitar and be a better player. And if I got to watch, you know, Phil Ball and Grady Martin play guitar, then I could go. Oh, I don't. I know I'm nowhere. I need to start over or whatever. At least I wanted to to see that and, and see those guys hopefully play in a club and, and and learn from that. That was my main goal, period. If I got work, bonus, you know? Yeah. So did you know any any many people out in Nashville when you when you landed there? No. Nope. I knew one gal that let me sleep on her floor uh, when I got there. And I met her in L.A. and played with her and then... Uh, she said, "Well, if you ever come to Nashville, look me up. You got a you got a floor to stay on." I said, "I'll take you up on it someday." So a few years later, sure enough, I called her up. She said, "Yeah, come on. I got a I got a foam on the floor for you." Wow. So that was that. I didn't know a soul or anybody, but I I didn't care. I wanted to go there and and do that. You know, so I figured I'd always go home. Oh, you didn't think that you were like going there to sort of try to establish yourself in the circuit. Nah, I didn't care about that at all. I thought if I can work and play and make make enough to survive, I'll be fine. Then I can, you know, work around that and, and go watch guys play and go to the Opry and go to these gigs and watch these other players play downtown. And that was my main goal, totally. And, and if I could play a little bit, even on the weekends, I can live on that, you know? Yeah. And I figured if I, if I couldn't, and didn't make any money at all and couldn't work and ran out of money, well, then I could go back home and pick up where I left off with some bar band, traveled around Alberta and Saskatchewan, you know? Uh, how, how long were you in Nashville before you found yourself uh, some kind of steady gig? I was probably there two months before I had a regular gig. Pretty uh, pretty slim pickings uh, early on, trying to get on your feet and going to jams or going to see bands and stuff like that? Yeah, I would go to every jam session I could find, and you know, I learned how I, I learned that I needed a business card back then with a phone number on it, 
so uh you know that was the first thing is i i rented a room and got a phone line put in with a phone number so i had to uh when i lived in la i had these business cards made with no phone number on them and on the back i would stamp the phone number wherever i was living <laughs> so uh I had one of those uh, stamps. They used to use a rubber stamp that had the wheels on it, and you could change the numbers. So I had a 10-digit number uh, stamp made So with the rollers so I could change the area code and the phone number wherever I was living. That way I could keep the same card. That's kind of a cheap Canadian trick there. That's a great idea. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that way I still had the same card everywhere I went, but I changed the number on the back whenever I got a new phone, you know. So anyway, I would go to the jam session. We'd give my card out. Hey, if you need a guitar player, you know, same old thing. And uh, hustle, hustle, trying to get gigs. Then took quite a while. And I mean, I was down to my last 65 bucks thinking, man, I got to leave town when this is gone, you know, at that point. And I did get a couple of weekend gigs and and that helped out a little bit. And then, you know, then nothing for the rest next week. It's like, uh-oh. You know, it was like that. Touch and go for a couple of months. But Shit, I was used to that. That's how, that's how I was living. So it was nothing new, you know. And uh, and then you get the gig with Don Kelly Band? Yeah, I got a steady thing with him at a place uh, called the Stagecoach Lounge. It was a little nightclub, a freestanding building uh, in town there. And uh, it was a, his gig was six nights a week. And then he had uh, Sundays off. So I, I when I started the gig, uh, the Sunday came open, so I grabbed the Sunday and I played seven nights a week there for about a year and a half. Yeah, and I played downtown as well during the day. <clears throat> oh, so you really? Eh? So you're just playing guitar every day, every night? I I played ten hours a day. I should be not. Hey there again, folks. As we approach the halfway point of today's episode, I'd like to thank you once again for tuning in. You're listening to the Northern Report Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Burns, and our guest today is Red Volkart. I'll remind you to follow along with the Northern Report Podcast and playlist on Spotify. Subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts. Listen on YouTube, our anchor.fm page, or wherever you find your podcasts. Now, of all the folks that I've met along the way, I'm not sure anyone has as many stage hours as Red does. I was happy to hear about his start in the early part of his career in the sophisticated field of beautiful country music. His desire to somehow get even better at the guitar is something that's seemingly always been at the forefront in his mind. And for someone at the level that Red is at, it's refreshing and inspiring to hear about that. In the back half of this chat, we'll continue on with his time in Nashville, the Merle Haggard gig, living in Texas, and life now, hanging his hat in the state of Virginia. Yeah, there's no, no way to beat, like, uh, you know, hours on the stage, hours on the job, as far as, you know, progressing and learning goes. Oh, totally. Yeah, you get, yeah, you get, you get so familiar with it, you know, you start thinking of something else to play, you know, so... And with those bands, same thing. We had to learn top 40 songs. You know, Don's, Don's rule was every week we need four new songs. Every Each guy in the band had to bring a new song to the to the gig, you know. So we had to learn new stuff off the radio at that time. And, and uh, 
any, so that and then do our old regular stuff to, you know get the dance floor full so I did that gig seven nights a week and I played downtown doing a duo or or a band thing like back back then Broadway was just kind of getting going again because it was a real slum funky part of town before that and uh, it started coming back and there was a bunch of clubs that opened up or bars so they had duos and you would play a duo or a single from 11 to 2 and then another band would start would do 2 to 6 2.30 to 6 and then a 6 to 10 and a 10 to 2 right on so you if you had enough backbone, you could play, you know, you could play four shifts downtown, you know. So I did the stagecoach, and I would do one or two downtown. I'd do like 11 to 2, and then uh, maybe a 2 to 6, and then I'd go home, have supper, and, and then do my 9 to 2 with Dawn, you know. That's a five-hour gig back then. Were you doing lead singing in those days, too? Uh, I, I did a little bit, but... Uh, not then. I mean, I was trying not to. You know, I did, when I moved to the states, I told everybody I didn't sing and I didn't want to and all that. So I kind of got in a spot where, hey, we got to have another singer in the band, or or we can't use you. You know, kind of deal. So I was like, okay, well, how many do I have to sing? <laughs> <laughs> so I'd learn, you know, whatever they wanted. I'd do that and a couple of tunes and here and there and. So I started singing, but it wasn't like me up front full time being the singer band leader guy. I never even wanted that ever. You know, I just wanted to shut up in the back and turn the light off and I'll play. Yeah, I was know? I was wondering about that. Like if you had ever had had the, the urge to be the lead singer or if it was just one of those things that uh, that keeps you working. No, I just I mean, when I moved to Austin, I had to sing full time all the time. Because I, I, everybody there, it seemed like, didn't want a guitar player that didn't sing. Like, if you don't sing, we can't use you. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so it's like, oh, all right. So then I thought, well, I'll find me a singer that I can stomp all over and overplay over top of the singing all night. And I'll put my own band together. So I went around looking for singers. And I heard a couple of guys that, that didn't have bands that were looking around, you know, and singing. And I thought, yeah. I could sing that bad. I might as well just do it myself. So I started singing, started singing then when I started playing in Austin and I put my own band together and that was the end of that. <laughs> Kept it going. Were you still with Don Kelly when you got the call for the Merle gig? Oh no, I was long gone by then. I'd, uh, I'd left Don's band with one of the fiddle players that were in the band. He had a record deal, a fellow named Clinton Gregory. So we went on the road for a few years doing that. Then when I got back to town and that fizzed out, I got back to town and went back with Don and we were playing at a different club at that time. We were, uh, he'd quit the stagecoach and he was playing at a place called the pink elephant. We did that for a little while. Then I went back on the road with somebody else and, and then they played at Gabe's for about six, seven years, another lounge bar up at the North end of town. And, I played that for off and on for a couple of years with them filling in mostly. And, uh, then eventually went to Roberts down on Broadway and I'd come back off the road again for a while. And I did, so he said, Hey, you want to play? I need a guy. Okay. So I did that for, I don't know, a year or two. And then that's when I, I was playing with Don at the time. And then that's when I got the call to go on the road with Merle. 
you were in Nashville for a number of years before you got the Merle gig. I was there. Yeah, I was there 11 years, so I, I got the Merle gig probably after about nine years. So, I mean, I, I know you probably get asked about the Merle gig uh, for, in every interview you've done for the last 20 years, and I've, I've heard you talk about it a little bit before, too, in interviews, but could you tell, tell me a little bit about uh, like what year you got the gig and, and how you got the gig? Well, I, uh, I think I started in 97, I think it was, 97. And I've been playing uh, on Broadway with Don from uh, 6 to 10. And then I would run up the street to the Printer's Alley, and I've had a regular gig there with a trio playing from 10.15 till 2.45 uh, every six nights a week there. That's amazing. And while I was there... Uh, you know, I got to know a bunch of folks in town and stuff like that, but Merle would come to town, of course, and do TV shows and whatever, and the Opry and things like that. But a lot of those shows that they did the TV things back then, they would film them like at four or five o'clock or, or at one in the afternoon and film it and then play it at eight o'clock at night on TV. So, of course, those guys were done by six or seven o'clock at night. And the band guys are like, okay, now what? Oh, let's go hit the hit the town. So they all go scouring around town and jam with people and hang out and play. And so I kind of got to know a bunch of the guys in the band back then because they would come to that gig in the alley. I had a trio. So they would come. Clint Strong would come in and he'd play and sit in, bring an amp and sit in. And Norm, the steel player, he came sit in a couple times. And, you know, just the bass player came all the time and just sat in and hung out whenever they were there. Wasn't a lot, but maybe three, four times a year. So when the gig came open, I guess Merle had said to the band guys, well, who do you guys think we ought to get? And uh, five out of eight of them said me. So I thought, oh, that was pretty cool. So he calls me on the phone, and uh, he says, is this Red Volkart? And I said, yeah. He said, this is Merle Haggard. And I said, Murphy, you lying bastard. I thought it was my buddy Jim Murphy <laughs> yeah. pulling my leg because he was a real prankster. So uh, I said, Murphy, you lying bastard. Quit fucking with me. And he goes, no, 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 no. My name is Merle Haggard. I'm a singer. <laughs> and I was like, well, who says that? Yeah, like, like your dad made, yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah. It was like, I'm a singer. It's like, what else is he going to say? Yeah, you know, but, the great Merle Haggard, how else can he say that, you know? So I thought, it's got to be him, because who else would say that, you know? So I said, okay. And he said, yeah, Norm Hamlet gave me your number. He's my band leader. And I was like, okay. You know, and that was that. And he said, well, we're looking for guitar players. <laughs> Wondered if you want the job. And I said, uh, give me a second. Yeah, okay. You know, <laughs> and that was the end of it. And at that point, you must have been blown away, you know, as, as a fan of country music. Even even if you're not a, you know, I'm sure you were a big fan of Merle's already, but it must have been a pretty incredible. And and to get the seal of approval from Mr. Norman Hamlet must have been really great too. Well, yeah, it was awesome. I mean, just the I'd studied that stuff and Merle's music my whole life and knew every one of his tunes and all the intros and all the endings and blah blah blah, you know. And I've been playing it in bars all my life. That's a staple in the in the club scene back in those days. So to get that gig was awesome. You know, as soon as I hung up, I called my mom and I said, well, I can die now. And she said, oh, did Bill Haggard call you? No way. 
That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I said, Man. yes, he did. She said, oh, my God. You know. <laughs> yeah. So was there ever any any ever any discussion uh, or uh, tension among you and, and the guys uh, about about the about the five out of eight votes? I got even with those other three. <laughs> oh yeah. Now they just didn't know me, so they didn't they didn't know to recommend you know or who I was. Where the other the other five were the were the rounders that you know caroused around town and went jamming with everybody all the time. The other ones didn't didn't do that, so they wouldn't know they wouldn't know me. You know. So Merle gives you a call. You're living in Nashville. What's what's the next move? Like where where do you go? What's that first meeting like with him? Well, I said, is there any way you can? Uh, I said, can you send me? <laughs> or then I went, oh shit! I said, or somebody in your band send me some uh, tapes or CDs or whatever of what you're the way you're doing stuff now. I said, no offense, but. I've learned all your stuff off the records and I know it verbatim. So that's not a problem, but I know also from seeing TV shows and things that, that when you guys play, you don't play the things like the records anymore. You got little different versions and lots of harmony parts and things like that. So, uh, I think it would be helpful for me to hear some of those newer versions of all that stuff of maybe a few shows and I could bone up on it a little bit and be better prepared. And he goes, Nah, just come play with us. <laughs> wow. So I thought, fuck yeah, I'm in. Let's do it. And that was it. He said, okay. Well, I said, I'll have Norm deal with you, and uh, you guys figure it all out. He said, uh, he'll send you a plane ticket. We'll meet at the first town, and and, uh, and then you fly home from the last town. Wow. So what was the first show you played with him? First place was a place called Canocti Resort in uh, Northern California. So, uh, I mean, he didn't fly, so he, he took his buses everywhere. So, like, if we play, when I played up there, I flew to Sacramento, and they picked me up on the way down in the bus, and we did the tour, and that, that particular tour was California, Arizona, and then back to California. So I flew back home from Sacramento. But a lot of times, like, if they were starting in New York, uh, the buses would leave two to three days early, from California where he lived, drive to New York, and then whoever didn't, whoever they couldn't pick up on the way on the on, on route on the highway uh, to New York, that those guys would fly. Like say, if they took the northern trip, uh, the route to get to New York through Oklahoma and go that way, the guys that lived in Louisiana would have to fly. You know that kind of thing. So. But it worked out great. It was they had it. They had all that stuff figured out perfectly, and never any problems. You know, with flights and lining it up, and yeah, it was great. Um, and Merle always rode the bus. Didn't did, didn't fly. Uh, he, I think he flew uh, the the time I was with him. I, I think he might have flown twice or three times. He'd re, he'd rather drive for three days than get on the plane. He just didn't like it. Simple as that. I mean, you 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 had a, a wealth of experience and had already played with some you know notable names in country music. But were you nervous that first night on stage with that band? Oh, scared shitless. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna blow this and make every mistake I can and not remember anything and get fired all the first night. And of course, it didn't happen like that. 
No, it didn't work that way. But I mean, I, I was still, I was, I probably could have went through four shirts on the gig, you know. I bet. How long did it take you to settle in and and feel like you know this was your gig? You're in this band. Uh, probably about three months, I guess. Because they were, you know, they were old pros, so they didn't even talk to each other anymore. They've been in the band thirty years already, and that kind of thing. So it was like pretty quiet. That kind of camaraderie thing between the band guys and. Uh, you know, we'd jam on the bus all the time on Merle's bus and with acoustic guitars and fiddles and just jam and play, all, you know, a bunch of Bob Will stuff all the time and that. But nothing was discussed or anything. And, and uh, Norm was the band leader and there were lots of stories on that. You know, guys uh, getting let go or, or messing up and getting fired or whatever, that kind of stuff. So one day I just went to Norm and I said, hey, after about a month and a half, I said, so what's the deal? He goes, what do you mean? What's the deal? I said, well, I don't know if I'm in the band or not. Nobody ever says anything. He said, oh, I think you're probably in it. I said, well, <laughs> probably isn't good enough to be. I mean, what's going on? He said, well, you see him laughing when you're playing your solos? I said, yeah, that's kind of what makes me nervous. He said, let me tell you, as long as he's laughing, you got a gig. <laughs> I was like, Okay, so what it was working out to was I would play a solo, of course, I'd be polite and play it just like the record, and then he'd go, yeah, that's good, go again, I'd play another one. So by the third one, I'm starting to get a little more daring on my playing, and he's and by then he's laughing. So I, this happened every time we played. So, uh, of course, the new guy gets the most solos in the band because he wants to hear that guy. He's tired of hearing the old ones. So... <laughs> I get to play lots and lots of solos and all that stuff. And he's laughing the whole time. And it seemed like, okay, the crazier I played, the more he laughed kind of thing. So Norm said, no, you just keep doing what you're doing and you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. So that's when I was like, oh, I guess I'm in. I'm in. Did, did he ever call a song that you, that you hadn't heard before or you weren't too familiar with? Mm, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I played every one of those songs and, and every band I've ever been in, in Canada too, I made them, I requested them to sing, you know, album cuts, not the hits, you know. I mean, everybody knows the hits, but I liked all the cool playing on the album cuts. So I would get guys to purposely learn album cuts so I could get to play those intros and solos and all that kind of stuff 30 years ago. So, yeah, I, I don't think there was, I don't can't think of a song that he would call that I wouldn't know. He's, uh, he's got some excellent live albums in the catalog, and people, uh, a lot of friends of mine that are Merle Haggard fans, they often go back to the, the record, the live show in Anaheim. But for me, uh, it's the live at Billy Bob's, the Motorcycle Cowboy record, that really, really does it for me. Maybe it's because, uh, you know, when it came out, it sort of coincided with my early years of, of my own country music apprenticeship. And I, I remember hearing you play on that. That's the first time I heard you play and became aware of you. And there was a musician in my hometown that uh, knew you from, uh, from Edmonton, a guy named Brian Feeland. Yeah, you bet. So Brian, yeah, so Brian knew who you were, and my old man was a picker. And uh, so, you know, there was he was say, oh, this is Red. He's, uh, he's like from Edmonton or something, and he's playing with Merle Haggard. And I was a big fan of Merle already at the time, mostly of the late 70s and, and the early 80s. And I still think... 
that the Live at Billy Bob's record holds up as one of the really great live country music records. It's uh, my favorite version of Ramblin' Fever. And I always wanted to ask you about that night, if you remember much about it, or if it was just a regular show, or if it felt like a little bit more of a special evening. Well, it was a New Year's Eve, actually, when we taped that uh, record. Oh. And uh, Merle got Johnny Gimble to come up from Waco and, and play with us as well. So uh, to me, that was a ball last to have Johnny Gimble on the same stage and get to play with him, you know? Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was just like, ooh, wow, this is it. Here I am, I got my Canadian ass up here playing in Billy Bob's, Texas with Merle Haggard and Johnny Gimble. It doesn't get much better than that, you know? So yeah, it was a wonderful night and everything went good and the band was on and all of that stuff and... Yeah, it was awesome. So, and it was a New Year's Eve, so that's made it huge, uh, rememberable for me. You know, in that, hey, they're going to make a live record out of this thing. I think that's what they were talking about. And, and sure enough, a couple months later, the thing comes out. Did pretty good, I guess. You know, that's a great record. It's like got got all the hits, but it's also got some other ones on there, and the Motorcycle Cowboy, and just great arrangements. Yeah. Like, like you were saying, you know, they kind of did the tunes a little bit differently, adapted them over the years, and like the 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 twin lines, the harmony lines. It just, I don't know. I, I to me, it just means so. It means so much to me as a fan of country music and of Merle. Like I just think it's a great record, and you could feel the energy of that room. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. Must have been exciting. So did you feel like, I mean, I guess after you'd been in the group there for a few years and been on some records, maybe puts puts your name on the map uh, nationally and internationally in a, in a bigger way than it had before. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. More people are aware of you and, that, you know, that, oh, this guy's alive and he plays pretty good, you know? Mm-hmm. And you, you, when you, when you depart the band, that's when you headed to Texas? Uh, no, I'd already moved to Texas, uh, at that point from Nashville. Uh, I was playing well when I was with Merle yet. I was still in, I had some of my gigs downtown and then he was working a lot. Uh, after about the first year he worked, seemed like he worked a lot. So I ended up giving my gig to Johnny Highland with, with, uh, Don Kelly. Uh, Johnny was playing across the street at a place called the turf a bar and a tornado comes through town a weird first big tornado there came through and whacked out the building and knocked it right off the corner tore it all down so he was out of a gig and he'd been subbing for me anyway he was doing afternoons over there and then subbing for me on the night gig doing the six to ten so i said to don i said hey you know i'm on the road a bunch and i'm gone a lot and, and uh I think it'd be a good idea if, if Johnny took my place and joined your band as a regular because he's out of work on that other gig and he needs the city work anyway. And I got a good gig on the road and I'm not home that much. So how about if I I be Johnny's sub when he needs to sub and I'm home? You know, that kind of thing. Don's like, yeah, that'd be great. Sure, okay. <laughs> you know, because we had a really good friendship, me and Don Kelly, really, really good buds. So it wasn't like, Oh, I'm quitting your band because I don't like you anymore. It wasn't that kind of deal or none of that, you know. Right. So anyway, after that, it was like, yeah, we're on the road a lot. And the little bit we were in town, I, I played some here and there. But by then, it was starting to change a lot for me in town, the music that was going on. 
and it seemed like when I left that Don Kelly was kind of the last real country band on Broadway. So I thought, nah, it might be a good time to jump ship. I got a good gig that's paying okay, and and I can afford to move. But if this gig pulls up, I won't be able to afford to leave town and go somewhere else. So uh, I decided to move then, and I moved to Austin. And then uh, I still played with Merle for probably a couple of years after that, uh, while I was, had moved to Austin, relocated there. I think I think I heard somewhere where, where you said you left the band, left Merle Haggard's band, just simply because he wasn't working enough uh, at that time. Is that true? At that time, yeah. I Like I said, I'd moved to Austin and was living there. And then, oh, I think it, the first year there was great. You know, we played a lot. Then the second year, he'd cut way back, and we'd done like 52 gigs that year, and that was it. And then the next year, they had 40-something on the book because he just didn't want to play at that point. He was starting to get a little bit sick once in a while and canceling some gigs and things and all of that. So I was like, at that time, I was still married to this other gal, and I needed to work because she was pretty greedy and wanted, wanted, wanted. And I was like, man, I got I to gotta work more than that. I can't, I can't make it work on that kind of uh, amount of work and money. So I had to quit because of that, you know. And you know you were thinking thinking ahead, so you went down to Texas, uh, uh, a comfortable place to play country music. The infrastructure, a lot of pickers, a lot of venues. Uh, and when you got to Austin, it was still bumping, hey? Like it was gigs all over town. Oh yeah, it was. Yeah, it was going. There was like two hundred clubs in Austin going at that time. Just a shitload, like Nashville, same thing. Real, real busy and lots going on. You know. Did you form the Hay Bale Band when you got there? Was that the band you were talking about earlier? No. We had actually had the hay bale band for about three months in Nashville uh, with the, the original guys was Gary Claxton was the singer and Tom Lewis was a drummer and I, and I was the guitar player. And we had that band in Nashville for about three months. And then uh, I was gone all the time and Tom was going to move back to Texas. So he moved, and Gary moved, and then when I got to Texas, Tom says, hey, want to put our Haybell band back together? So we did, and we started at the Continental, and, you know, got added uh, Kevin Smith on bass and Earl Ball on on the piano, and we ended up having, uh, you know, Sunday night residency there for 20 years. 20 years? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, the same as my afternoon gig that I had with my band was 20 years as well on Saturday afternoon. When you were off the road with Merle and you were living in Austin, were you playing six, seven nights a week still? I worked as much as I could, yeah, you bet. And then when I quit Merle, then I played seven nights a week and two shifts on Saturday and Sunday, you know. That's so great. So you mean, you know, I don't know. I've talked to a lot of people and played music with a lot of people over the years, but I'm pretty sure you've got more stage hours than anyone I've ever met. I don't know about that, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it's available, I'll take it. <laughs> I've been that guy my whole life. So, you know, and, until just recently, I moved to Virginia for that very reason, just so I won't be playing seven nights a week till three in the morning every night. And, yeah, I wanted to get away from all of that and just take a break from it. And, uh, and I'm out in the middle of nowhere where there's no bars. I'm out in the country. But I could still, I didn't anticipate the COVID thing, but it's starting to come back now. But I thought, well, I could still go travel and do stuff half the time or a third of the time and cut way back. 
but I won't be playing the bar thing every night, you know, all the time by living out here. So now I'm in, now I'm in Virginia doing that. And I say then the COVID thing hit. So I didn't have anything for a year other than, you know, things I do at home, teach Skype lessons and, uh, do a Dropbox kind of recording for guys, you know, recording stuff at home and sending it, uploading it and doing it that way. But, uh, so now with the, everybody's had their shots, I guess, or most everybody that it'll start coming back, hopefully. And I can go back to play a little bit and, travel and kind of pick and choose what I want to do instead of slamming it out seven nights a week, you know, cause uh, I've always been the guy to never say no to a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I've, I've been watching some of those, those Facebook live shows, uh, from the Floyd country store and you seem to have landed on a, on a really nice rhythm section up there. Did, did you know those fellas before you got there? No, no, I met them, uh, kind of, through email sort of a deal, the, uh, the bass player reached out to me and said, Hey, I heard you moved to our area here. and sure like to get together with you and do some stuff and blah, blah. And I know a drummer. And, oh, great. You know, so slowly because of the situation, I haven't met very many people, but uh, I think in the fall, we're going to start a regular Thursday, uh, like a happy hour or some kind of gig at that little store when they get it a little when they get to the place where they can have it open more, you know, with, with the public, you know, right now it's still kind of streaming stuff only and playing safe. But if it comes back and opens up, well, then I'll have a regular Thursday residency gig for that. And it's, uh, that's about a, almost an hour drive one way. So it's, you know, once a week I can do that, but I don't want to do a whole bunch of that stuff, drive an hour every day to go for two hours there and back every day to go play a bunch of bar gigs. I'm just kind of not into it anymore, you know? Yeah. Well, Hey man, you've earned, you've earned that right. I'll say. I'll put in enough time. I think, you know, you got, uh, got any favorite guitar pickers out there today? Oh, all the old dead ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> any They're of the living ones? <laughs> huh? Any living ones that uh, that you, you find yourself enjoying the playing on? Oh, they're all great. Everybody. I mean, there's just a pile of great new guys or young guys that are out there that are play all kinds of everything. I mean, there's just wonderful, uh, wonderful players, I think, because the young guys get to learn so easy now. They can go to YouTube or, you know, they buy a video for 50 bucks on the online of what a guy took 30 years to learn and they can buy that and learn that in an hour and a half, you know, I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Much different. Yeah. It's a a wonderful thing, you know? So yeah, well, everyone I've seen and heard online sounds great. I got no, (laughs) are there, are there any, uh, any artists or are there even other guitar players that come to mind that you haven't worked with yet, but that you'd like to, uh, Not that I can think off the top of my head. I mean, I'd like to play with everybody. That's all good and fine. But uh, I think I've, in a way, I think if it never happens, that's okay. I've done, I've made enough noise in my life, you know, and that's all good. But, uh, you know, if something comes along, shit, I'll do it. I mean, I still got other things I'm doing, like uh, coming up this fall. I got some gigs with Bill Kirchin. We're playing together again. And, uh, it was always fun to play with other guys and other players and that too, you know, and, uh, shit, I don't think I played with both of them or, or a pile of them. I mean, at least in my genre, 
you know. Thanks very much, Red. Man, I, I really appreciate it. It's been nice to meet you, and uh, and I hope to get down there and uh, and get to get to play with you at some point point next year. Yeah, I'll, all right. I'll look forward to it. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for your time, man. Have a great day. Well, friends, I hope you've enjoyed my chat with Red Volkart. Huge thanks to Red for indulging me, talking about his career, his life, and some of the marvelous names that he shared the stage with. Find Red's solo albums wherever you stream music for a nominal monthly fee, or check him out at redvolkart.com. Follow along with the Northern Report Spotify playlist to hear music from the folks that I've covered in the Hockey Tonk Times column, as well as here on the podcast. Give us a rating, subscribe, like, follow, and share the Northern Report. And thank you so much to everybody that's done that so far. Our logo was created by Boots Graham of Boots and the Hoots, Central Alberta's finest hockey talkers. Music on the show today, courtesy of Sean Burns and Lost Country, The Divorcees, and Skinny Dick. From local legends, to regional stars, to the cream of the Canadian crop, you'll find it all here on the Northern Report. Thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll chat later. Hey, bud, what you got for us today? Well, somehow my phone didn't ring.